This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 473. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Okay, Psalms, Book of Psalms. Psalm 36. A Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. So here we have another of these psalms by Israel's great shepherd king, David. And we see many, many of these psalms in book one of the psalms are by David. Now David, the servant of the Lord. And Bollinger says that in the Hebrew text, these two words are reversed. And so the title stands thus, Relating to Jehovah's Servant, by David. So relating to Jehovah's servant by David. And he says this is exactly what it is, his prayer and praise in view of Psalm 22 in death and resurrection. He says Psalm 18 is the only other psalm so entitled. And Psalm 18, if we remember, that is a very important psalm. It's one that's also uh, found in the book of 2 Samuel, so it's repeated multiple times in Scripture, which is often a sign that something is of importance. The Lord repeats it, although, of course, some things are important that aren't repeated. But the servant of the Lord, so this is relating to the Jehovah's servant by David. So we'd expect this to be about Jehovah's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. So the transgression of the wicked says within my heart. What in the world does that mean? Well, Bollinger suggests translating it as the rebellion of the wicked declares as an oracle within me. In other words, convincing David that there was no fear of God before his eyes. So in other words, David is looking on and he is seeing the rebellion of the lawless. And so as he watches their rebellion, this causes him to realize that there is no fear of respect for or awe of God before his eyes, before the eyes of this rebellious one. Now, likewise, we see in the rebellious actions of many today that they too lack any respect for God. So as we watch the rebellion of these wicked ones, this should declare like an oracle to us that they have no respect for God whatsoever. Verse 2, For he flattereth himself in his own eyes, until his iniquity be found to be hateful. So he flatters himself in his own eyes. He refuses to honor God. Do you have any respect for reverence or reverence for him? And yet at the same time, he flatters himself. He vainly imagines that he does not need God, failing utterly to see what a weak, dependent creature he really is. 
So he flatters himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. So even as he discovers iniquity, and even as he acts hatefully, at the same time he flatters himself as to what a great person he is. So even as he discovers iniquity and acts hatefully, he flatters himself in his own eyes. Verse 3, The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. So all that he says are pointless lies. And all that he does is useless wickedness. Now he has left off to be wise and to do good. Well, because of his wickedness, he has lost all wisdom. His wickedness has caused him to lose all wisdom. Verse 4. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. So he devises wickedness on his bed. And this contrasts with the thoughts of the godly man on his bed in Psalm 63 and verse 6. Psalm 63, 6 says, When I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches. So David, the godly man, he remembers God upon his bed. He meditates on Jehovah during the night watches. And yet this rebellious one devises wickedness on his bed. Now this could also refer to devising mischief regarding whom he quote-unquote beds. So that could also be what this is talking about. Devising mischief regarding who he's going to bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. So he orders his life in a way that's not good. That's what it means that he sets himself. He just sets up his whole life in a way that's not good. And there are many who do this. They set up their families, for example, in just this way. They set them up badly from the start. They don't even start right. And so, of course, chaos ensues. Others start businesses that are bad to the core. They never should have started such a business, and yet they do. And they double down on wicked policies. So they set themselves, they just set up their lives in a way that's not good. And then he abhorreth not evil. And evil there is ra'ah, again meaning calamity. Now there are many things that cause calamity in our world and ought to be abhorred. But instead, they are accepted and even honored by a world that loves wickedness. Well, men can deny the calamity that comes from these things, but ultimately they cannot escape the consequences of their destructive actions. Now we have the contrast in verse 5. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. So against the backdrop 
of the wicked and rebellious man, we have the grace of Jehovah. And that mercy there is chesed, which is the Hebrew word for loving kindness or grace. And ultimately, however great man's wickedness is, God's grace is greater than man's wickedness. So the psalmist here now delights in the God whom the lawless wicked have rejected and maligned so foolishly. So thy grace, O Lord, is in the heavens. And that means it is among the most exalted beings, for that is where he dwells. The Lord dwells among the most exalted, and his grace is there. And your faithfulness unto the clouds, that is much higher than man can ever attain to unaided. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Verse 6, Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. So he says that Jehovah's righteousness is like the great mountains. But in Hebrew that is the mountains of El, the mountains of God. So his righteousness is like the mountains of God. Of course, we have elsewhere in the Old Testament that talk about the sides of the north. And it seems to speak of mountains where the Lord dwells. So your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And thy judgments are a great deep. Bullinger points out that the Masoretes canceled an and here. They originally read, and thy judgments are great deep. Now again, his judgments, of course, are his determinations, his just decrees as to what is right. Now the great deep here is in Hebrew the great abyss. And so the mountains or the mountains of God are put for height and the great abyss here is put for depth. And the first time we have this word abyss, it's used of the ocean deep. Of course, in the New Testament, we have that the spirits who sin, the wicked angels who sinned, are imprisoned in a place called the abyss, which I don't think is the ocean deep, but is a prison. But at any rate, the mountains of God and the abyss are put for the height. His righteousness is high like the mountains of God. His judgments are deep like the abyss. He says, O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. Preserve there is saves. And God indeed is the Savior. He saves all mankind. And he does not allow us to destroy ourselves or to be destroyed by any external force. And we can see that God has done this. If When we consider, for example, the rapid decline in ages after the flood, where we went from living over 900 years to our lifespan dropping rapidly, sometimes as much as 200 years in one generation. Well, if that had continued, our ages could have dropped so low that we would have died before we were capable of reproducing, and that would have resulted in the destruction of the human race. But God did not allow this to happen. He saves man. He saves Adam's race. Now, the same is true today. Some people fear, well, what if someone started nuclear warfare? And nuclear warfare could 
wipe us all out. Well, God will never allow us to destroy ourselves by nuclear warfare. Other people worry, what if somebody comes up with some biological weapon, some super disease, and it ends up wiping out the earth? Well, God will never allow us to destroy ourselves that way either. No, God preserves Adam's race. And that's man here is Adam. Thou preservest man and also beast. That's word for cattle. You saw that God do that at the flood. He, he not only didn't allow man to die in the flood, he didn't allow the animals to die in the flood either. And look at all the many, many different kinds of animals on earth that God preserved through the flood. So he is the God who preserves Adam and the cattle, the beast. Verse 7, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. So he says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! And loving kindness there is chesed, again, grace, the same word as in verse 5. So again, we're contrasting God's grace with the rebellion of the wicked. So he says, How oh, excellent is your grace, O God! Therefore, because of your grace, the children of men, well, that is the Hebrew Ben Adam, the sons of Adam, and we indeed are Adam's race, and we are the representatives of Adam's race. So the sons of Adam, the representatives of Adam's race, put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. And we can think here of baby birds putting their trust under the shadow of their mother's wings. Their mother covers them with her wings. But the word wings can also be used for skirts. And we could think there of a child who seeks protection under his mother's skirts, or behind his mother's skirts, and the Lord's skirts, we trust under them. So, same thing. Whether it's a baby bird or a baby child seeking protection of its mother. So when will the sons of Adam put their trust under the shadow of his wings or of his skirts? When will they do this? When will they trust God for protection? When will they trust God for help for the helpless? Well, this will be at the start of God's kingdom. And God, notice, because of his grace. God isn't going to take the world by storm and by warfare and by bloodshed and by kicking butt and taking names. No, it's because of the excellence of his grace that the nations of earth and the sons of Adam are going to be willing to put their trust under his protection. And his grace will succeed in convincing all that his protection is what this world really needs. And so all the sons of Adam will trust in him because of his grace, not because of his ability to make war or violence or his power forcing them to. They, no, they turn, learn to trust him because of his grace. Verse 8, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. So he says, They shall be abundantly satisfied. So they are filled as with food and drink. 
they're abundantly satisfied with the fatness. In other words, all the, the manifold goodness, the plentiful goodness of your house. And fat, because most people often didn't have enough food back then, to be fat was to, considered to be filled with good things. And nowadays we look on being fat very negatively. They looked on being fat as a sign that you're filled with good things. So they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. And thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasure. So again, they are filled with drink. Now this has more to do than with physical hunger and thirst. But it has to do with complete satisfaction in all the goodness that he provides. So you shall make them to drink of the river of your pleasures. The full stream of your pleasures. So can you see how this relates to the Messiah? Can you see how this relates to the servant of the Lord? Now the river of thy pleasures here reminds us of the Lord's words in John chapter 4. When the Lord was talking with the woman of Samaria, and he, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Shall not for the eon thirst. By no means for the eon thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into Eonian life. And so that living water of the Lord, when they drink of that, that is full of the Lord's pleasures, of the Lord's paradise. Verse 9, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. So with God is the fountain of life. So again, we have these living waters. The Lord speaks of them like a fountain within him, flowing up into Ionian life. So with God is the fountain of life. And then he says, In thy light shall we see light. So in the Lord's light, he provides light in a way to make us truly perceive the light. Now the world today does not perceive the true light of God. They have given up on it. It is beyond them. They don't see his true light. Well, not so in the day of the kingdom. In the day of the kingdom, the sons of Adam will see the light through his light. Now today we have light, and the light that allows us to perceive the light today is his word. The Bible is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. It is the light that allows us to see the light. But in the kingdom, that light will shine on all men direct from heaven in the kingdom of God. Verse 10, O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. So he says, O continue or, or prolong your grace unto them that know thee. And if God's grace ever stopped short, what would happen to us? We would all be left without help if God's grace ever stopped short. So prolong your grace unto them that know thee. And thy righteousness to the upright in heart. So notice that it is God's righteousness imputed to those who know him through his grace. 
So he says, prolong your righteousness, imputed righteousness to the upright in heart. Verse 11, let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. Well, both the foot and the hand here are put for power. That which is under your feet is under your control. And that which is in your hand is under your control. Of course, if it's under your foot, uh, you could stomp on it and crush it, or you could stand on it lightly, but it's under your control. Same thing it's in your hand. You can dash it to the ground. You can hold it and take care of it. It's in your power. So he says, don't let the foot, the authority, the power of pride come against me. Let not the hand of the wicked remove me. So he's thinking back. He's talked about God's grace. And now he returns to his original topic, the wicked. He says, don't let the foot of pride and hand of the wicked come against me and remove me. Verse 12. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. So it's like he sees it. He says, there they are. And that's what we'll see in the kingdom. They shall go and look on the corpses of those who rebelled against me. And they'll say, there are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to arise. So notice that the prayer of the previous verse has been answered. And the wicked are cast down, the wicked are removed. And this anticipates, of course, the kingdom of God. When the wicked will be cast down, they will be removed for good. So that is Psalm 36. So Psalm 37 is again a psalm of David. So this is another psalm by the great shepherd king of Israel. So this psalm... 37 is an exhortation to patience in well-doing in spite of the temporary prosperity of the lawless. So it deals with the problem of the fact that the lawless do currently appear to prosper. And Rotherham points out it's one of a series of three psalms that struggles with this problem. Why do the wicked seem to get away with it? Why do the wicked seem to enrich themselves in their wickedness and get away with it? Of course, the book of Job kind of asks the same question. And Rotherham points out that this psalm presents time as the solution. That's what he says. Well, I would say that this psalm points out that their prosperity is short. It only involves this life. Whereas the kingdom will come and the righteous will enjoy blessing in it, but these wicked, for whatever they enjoyed in this life, will be cut off from it. So when you view the prosperity of the wicked in the light of the kingdom to come, you realize it really puts it into, contra, into context. You understand that it's not such a problem after all. Now this Psalm 37 is another acrostic psalm in which the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet begin various lines of the psalm in alphabetical order. Now each stanza, starting with the letter, has four lines. Each one of these four lines starts with a letter. So four lines of the first letter, then four lines of the second letter, and so forth. Except there are three exceptions. 
when there is a triplet of lines instead of a quatrain. Now the three exceptions are the fourth letter as a triplet instead of a quatrain in verse 7, the eleventh letter has a triplet instead of a quatrain in verse 20, and the nineteenth letter has a triplet instead of a quatrain in verse 34. And Bollinger points out that these are the seventh, the middle ending the first half, and the seventh to last lines or verses of the psalm. So there is a perfect order there. So that is the external form probably to help you memorize and remember this psalm. Because of course this is something people deal with quite often, is why does God allow the wicked to get away with it? And so this psalm is to help us understand it by putting their prosperity now in contrast with the kingdom and what will happen to them then. Verse 1, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. So here we have verse 1, starting off with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers. That word fret there, it means to be hot with vexation. So don't fret because of evildoers. Now we do not want to get too upset about sin and sinners. If all we ever do is look at sin and at the sinners in this world, we just start to fret, we get vexed, we get hot with vexation. And yet what good does all our fretting do? Jesus Christ spoke about worry and fretting in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 27. When he said, which of you by taking thought, can add one cubit onto a stature. And we can't do it. We, you know, All the fretting, all the worrying in the world isn't going to change anything. Now we do need to take reasonable precautions against wickedness. That's true. But we shouldn't allow wickedness to so dominate, upset us and so dominate our thoughts that it dominates our lives. No. No, we shouldn't fret. We shouldn't be all troubled and vexed because of evildoers. And that is uh, calamity causers, in other words. Don't be out with vexation because of calamity causers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. And many do this, too. They think that the sinners and the evildoers are having so much fun and enjoying so much pleasure through their wickedness. Well, that's what happens in the fiction. It's often shown in motion pictures and on television and in modern books that people do wickedness and it makes them happy. They enjoy it. They have fun. It's a great life. Fiction might back this up, but not reality. It isn't true. And it's foolish to be jealous of the wicked because the price of iniquity is high. And so we shouldn't be jealous of their apparent prosperity. Because he says in verse 2, For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. 
So he says they will soon be cut down. Now, David wrote this 3,000 years ago. And the workers of iniquity still continue. What this means is that God will cut them down quickly and easily. It means that God will take care of them and he will take care of them speedily. As speedily as, well, I've mowed plenty of times. Days worth of growth can be cut down very quickly when you're mowing the grass. And Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9. I'm going to be teaching at Bruce next week. But he says, 2 Timothy 3, verse 9, But they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. So the wicked will get to the point where they will be stopped in their tracks. They will proceed no further. Psalm 64, and verse 7, describes this. When it says, But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. So suddenly, quickly, speedily, these wicked will come to an end. So this takes place at the beginning of God's government on earth. That is the time when these evildoers and workers of iniquity will quickly be cut down. Now cut down there is the word that's often used for circumcised. And it means cut off. Not cut down, it means cut off. So these evildoers, these workers of iniquity, will quickly be cut off like the grass and wither like the green herb. And when you cut the grass and then you leave the grass cuttings lying there, what happens? They quickly die. They quickly turn brown and they wither. Once they've been cut off, they quickly start to deteriorate or destroyed. And so it shall be with the wicked. They are not cut off in order to be transplanted again. No, they will die away out of the earth altogether. Then we have verse 3. Now this one starts with Bet, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He says, Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. So rather than fretting about the wicked... Consider what will happen to them when the kingdom comes, and trust in the Lord instead. Now the Lord may not have acted to cut off the wicked yet. And the fact is, the death rate is still one apiece. The wicked die, the righteous die, doesn't make any difference. But we need to trust in the Lord. And we should know that the final outcome is in His hands. Because when we trust in the Lord and do good... And he says, so shalt thou dwell in the land. And that is the word Eretz in Hebrew, and it's the same word that's also translated earth. So the question is, do we take the small view, this is talking to Israelites, so this is speaking of Israel in the land, or do we take the large view, this is speaking of dwelling on earth in the kingdom of God? Well, for these people who are Israelites, both were true. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily... Thou shalt be fed. Now that word verily is often translated steadily or faithfully. And this was the promise to those who did good and trusted in the Lord in Israel. They were promised 
that they would have enough. They would dwell in the land, they would have enough, they would be fed. Now they weren't promised that they would have more than the wicked. <laughs> they weren't promised that they would not have to worry about oppression or so forth. But they were promised that the God would take care of them and be fed. they would be fed. And of course in the kingdom to come, his care will be universal. Now we have no promise that we'll be fed in our day. And there are believers in poor countries sometimes have to go hungry. Yet we too can trust in his true words to us. That we will someday dwell on the earth in the kingdom of God. And that God will take care of us steadily and faithfully. All our needs will be met in that kingdom. Then continuing with Bet in verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. So he says, delight in the Lord. Instead of fretting over the evildoers. And if all you do is sit around and watch the news, and it's always bad news. They never focus on things that are going well. They're always focusing on things that are going bad. Well, instead of being disturbed by all the bad and the wickedness in the world, we should delight ourselves. It is to make merry. We should make merry by spending our time focusing on Jehovah. That will give us delight. That will cause us to rejoice as opposed to focusing on the wicked. And he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Now does this mean we'll get everything we want, everything our selfish hearts desire? God will give it to us as long as we rejoice in him? No, those who rejoice in him do not automatically get their selfish desires. I think what he means here is that if you delight yourself in him, he will start to give you the desires. In other words, you'll start to desire the right things. He will give you the things that your inner being desires. So it's not talking about every selfish thing you might want. He'll provide for you, but it means that he will give you the things you desire. And you'll get the desires, and then, of course, in the kingdom to come, those desires will be fulfilled. And our desire for righteousness and for a better world and for justice and so forth, all those desires will be fulfilled in the kingdom to come. So now we have the fifth verse, which starts with the third Hebrew letter, or Gimel. It says, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So he says, Commit your way unto the Lord. So we had fret not, then we had trust, then we had delight, and now we have commit. Commit is actually roll upon in Hebrew. Roll your way onto the Lord. Then trust also in him. So same word we had in verse 3. Again, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Bring what to pass? Well, what we just had in verse 4. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. So he'll give you what you desire, and then he'll bring your heart's desire to pass. Well, what desire will he give you that he'll bring to pass? Well, ultimately, I think that's the desire for the kingdom. If we delight ourselves in him, he will cause us to start desiring his kingdom. And then he will bring that kingdom to pass, along with all the righteous realities that the kingdom will bring.
So he'll give us that desire and then he'll bring the desire to pass. Verse 6, And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the new day, as the noonday. So it says, And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light. So he will bring forth your righteousness. Now I believe that this is the day when Christ will shine forth. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4 speaks of this day. When it says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. And the word there is phanerao, he shall shine forth. He shall shine forth. When Christ is our life, shall shine forth. And shall we also, phanerao, we also shall shine forth with him in glorification. So the day when Christ shines forth, we shall shine forth with him. And that's described here in Psalm 37, as he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. And judgment, of course, for the godly, for the righteous, is vindication. And as Colossians 3, 4 says, we shall shine forth with him in glorification. Well, someday all are going to know just what the believer is in the sight of God. And someday we will be vindicated before him as he causes us to shine forth with Christ. So he'll bring forth your judgment, in other words, your vindication as the noonday. Then verse 7 starts with fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Dalit. And this is one of those that only has three lines, a triplet rather than a quatrain. So this verse 7, the three lines in verse 7 are the three lines of Dalit rather than four lines like the previous three letters had. So verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. So it says, Rest in the Lord. And that actually in Hebrew is, Be silent for the Lord. So be be silent. Stop worrying uh, stop fretting, stop doing things, just stand still in the Lord. And I believe someday the Lord is going to say to this earth as he brings in his kingdom, peace be still and stop all the clamor that's going on on earth. Cause people to stop and consider him. So be silent for the Lord and wait patiently for him. And the Hebrew word has to do with bear. Bear with him. And 3,000 years have passed since the writing of this psalm. And still we wait patiently for him to do something about wicked people. And he still hasn't done it. The wicked are still here. They're still wicked. Still just as wicked as they always were. Still godless and still seem to prosper in their way. But we bear with the Lord. We wait patiently for him. We are silent for him and wait for his kingdom to come. Then he says, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. And fret, again, like in verse 1, means be hot with vexation. He says, don't be hot with vexation because of him who prospers in his way, the wicked one who prospers in his way. And often the wicked seem to do that. They prosper in their wicked way. And he says, don't 
be hot with vexation because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. So this is the man, the Hebrew Ish. And Ish means a man, a male person, although I think, of course, it could apply to a female person as well. But because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass, and these are plots, wicked plots to pass, and we see this happen. And we can sometimes start, we think of those terrorists, those who cause destruction. They come up with wicked plots and then they carry them out. And we think of even wicked politicians who come up with their wicked schemes and then carry them out. And these things could cause us to fret, could vex us. Indeed they do. These are, these are bad things. We don't like them at all. But we need to wait patiently for the Lord in spite of this. Well, then verse 8, which is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, he says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. So he says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Cease there can mean to let go, to relax, to let it drop. <laughs> so let your anger go, forsake wrath. Fret, again, same word as the last verse, vex not yourself in any wise to do evil. And that's ra'ah, calamity-causing works. So don't get yourself so worked up about the prosperity of the wicked that you work yourself up into doing evil yourself. Because he says in verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So he says that the evildoers, the calamity-causing people, they will be cut off. And this is actually the same word, cut, as is often used to cut a covenant. When the sacrifice was cut into pieces so that the people entering into the covenant can pass through them. It's not the same word, cut down like grass, as we had in verse 2. It's a different word. It's the word for cutting a covenant. But in this case, they'll be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So cut off from what? Cut off from the earth. As we see what he means. Evildoers will be cut off from the earth. Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. So this is the contrast. And to inherit here means to have a portion. We typically think of inheriting as something you get when someone dies. But of course, God is never going to die that we could inherit from him. But that means they will have a portion in the earth. However, again here, it's the Hebrew word eretz, which could also mean land. And again, verse 11, again in verse 22, this word eretz, and it's always a judgment call on the part of the translator. Is it talking about the land of Israel? Or is it talking about the whole earth? Well, I think in, in this case, I would extend it out. Those that wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. For us, I would extend it out. For Israel, of course, we could limit it to the land. For us, we would extend it out to inheriting the earth and the kingdom of God. And this is the truth. What many people expect is that the righteous will inherit heaven. But this is never, in fact, promised in the scriptures. What it says is evildoers will be cut off from the earth. Those who wait upon the Lord, Lord shall inherit the earth. And that's what the Bible's testimony is upon this matter. Our future is on the redeemed earth and not in heaven, according to the Bible.
Then verse 10, sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or Vav, says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. He says, For yet a little while. Well, again, this psalm was written 3,000 years ago. About, as far as we can tell, about half Earth's history ago. And yet he says, a little while and the wicked shall not be. Well, how long is it really compared to all eternity? Not really all that long. And if we speak of individually the wicked, well, their death soon follows. But ultimately, of course, the wicked will be cut off altogether in the kingdom. Wicked here is lawless. Now we had ask ourselves, is this a promise regarding this life? Well, it's true, however, the current crop of righteous too will die soon enough. So you could say, for yet a little while and the righteous shall not be, if it's talking about this life, and that would be just as accurate. No, I think this is talking about the wicked as a whole. And someday you will not be able to find the lawless in any class of people on earth. The lawless as a class will be gone. God will have cut off the lawless from the earth. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. In other words, his former place, where he used to live. So no matter how carefully you search at this time, you could not find one example of the lawless man on earth. Because God will bring all into the law. He will bring all into his government. And at that point, all must follow his governmental law, or they will be cut off. And the result will be that the place of the wicked will be empty. You know, since David wrote this psalm, generation after generation, there have arisen a new crop of wicked to take the place of the old. And when the wicked die, you say, where are the wicked now? Well, you just turn around and there's a new crop of wicked come to fill their place. But in the kingdom, the wicked will be cut off and no one will fill their place. Their place will be empty. And though you search for it, you wouldn't find any wicked on earth. Then he says, verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So the meek, and this refers to the patient, oppressed ones. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now this would never happen today without the meek taking up arms and causing major bloodshed. <laughs> now that's the only way the meek are going to inherit the earth in this life. But this is going to happen not in this life, but in the kingdom of God. Not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. And God at that time will give them the earth. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. But again, word eretz could mean earth or land, as it's related to Israel. Now this portion of this verse is actually quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ, as we probably all recognize in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 in his so-called Sermon on the Mount, which was really his great teaching session to his disciples on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of course, that's in his portion that's often called the Beatitudes, where he blesses certain people. And in this case, he blesses the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. Reference right to the Old Testament to this verse. Now, most are unwilling to believe the Lord on that. They don't believe at all that the meek are going to inherit the earth. 
And they disbelieve the Lord just like they disbelieve David. They are unwilling to believe either one. They don't believe that the Lord is ever going to get the victory in the earth and give it to the meek. They only believe that God will get the victory in a land far, far away. Only in heaven could God ever get the victory. And they don't expect to inherit the earth. They only expect to inherit heaven. In fact, they cannot wait to leave the earth as their psalms show. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And so forth. Well, they can hardly wait to leave the earth. And they have no thought of inheriting it. But God's promise is that the meek shall inherit the earth. Not a home up there or way beyond the blue. No, he says the meek shall inherit the earth. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Who delights in this on earth now? And is there an abundance of peace on earth today? Is there abundance of goodness? Is there abundance of godliness on earth? Certainly not. Instead, there's a severe lack of peace on earth now. This word abundance, our English word, has to do with wave upon wave. They shall light themselves in wave upon wave. Well, that's how it's going to be. Of peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. We're probably all aware that that's a kind of a Jewish greeting, shalom. Often translated peace, and it seems to mean just plain rightness of everything. Just soundness or wholeness or goodness. Just things are, are right. Yeah, shalom. And, of course, this would be especially of things that are properly linked up with God. Well, things are not abundantly linked up with God today on this earth. They need to be, they should be, but they aren't. But someday, the meek are going to inherit the earth, and not an earth like this one we live on now, but an earth that is abounding in rightness. Well, that's just starting. That's just getting a taste of this psalm. And we will continue this psalm and consideration of it in our next study.